Well, life is full of questions. That's one of the things I like about life. I'm a thinker. I love questions. Um, I teach at HBU, and, and when I start class, I usually will hand out a little guideline of a few kind of principles that I like to live by and teach by and try to get the students to get more familiar with my teaching style. And on it, one of the, the little guidelines is that often a question is better than an answer. And I really do think that. Oftentimes a good question is more satisfying. It's more fun than a good answer. I'd rather have a discussion. I'd rather explore opportunities. I'd rather learn than have someone give me an answer so that I can memorize it and regurgitate it and get a grade, those kinds of things. Um, you know, there are these questions that all of us uh, experience that, that are kind of universally existential, interesting, vexing questions. There's questions that are serious, questions that are silly. I mean, at one point, we all find ourselves asking some of the same things. What's the meaning of life? Um, you know, is there life outside of Earth? Do vegetarians eat animal crackers? Right? I mean, we all ask, Janelle, can you tell us? I don't know. Can we get a ruling on this? Why is it, here's a good question, why is it that everyone who drives faster than you is a moron, and everyone who drives slower than you is also a moron? Am I the only one who wonders these things? late at night. But the Christian faith is, is full of, of, of questions as well. We, we have these interesting, vexing questions, um, serious, sometimes confusing. And today we're going to talk about one of them. Um, and, and the question is this, what happened to Jesus after he died? Now, not the obvious answer, which is he resurrected, which would be correct. We'll get to that. But what happened to Jesus after he died? What did he do, if anything? Where did he go, if anywhere? We might ask the question this way, what was Jesus's itinerary on Holy Saturday? That's what Christians call that, that space between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Holy Saturday. What was Jesus up to during the time between his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave? Now, we're in a sermon series where we're going through the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed is notorious for not only being one of the earliest statements of faith that most Christians around the world can universally accept, but also for having one little phrase in it that is one of these vexing, interesting questions. And that phrase has to do with this question, what happened to Jesus after he died? So the creed says Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and then descended into hell. And this is the point where a lot of people get uncomfortable with the Apostles' Creed. In fact, if you were to go to certain churches, lots of churches repeat the creed together as a statement of faith at the end of service. Some churches, though, will actually leave this phrase off of the creed. We'll skip it. And as I was thinking about the sermon series and I was preparing the creed for you guys, um, I did, you know, make a mistake and leave out the Holy Spirit there at the beginning, but we got him back in there. Um, but intentionally, I left this phrase in there because I do believe that it is an important one, that it's, it's kind of fraught with theological importance and in, in that it will do the two things that we've been hoping the creed will do, which is give us some insight into our faith and give us some balance with our faith. will increase our comprehension of what God has done and who he is and also help us balance out. Sometimes we can lean too far in one way. And when we look at all the truths that we find in Scripture, it can help us lean towards the other side. And so I'll read the creed, and then we'll jump in um, trying to answer this question. The creed goes like this, I believe in God, 
the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So the creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ. He descended into hell. Now, all of the statements here in the creed have scripture passages in the Bible behind them. That's kind of the point of the creed, a creed, is to kind of suck up the truth of the Scripture and summarize it. If we wanted to, um, we could, and, and hopefully as we've gone through the sermon series we have, um, you could go through the creed and kind of put parentheses behind each line and list off Scripture passages that kind of support um, these phrases in the creed. When we get to this phrase, he descended into hell, in between his crucifixion, death, burial, and between his resurrection, there are primarily two passages in Scripture where the early church fathers writing this creed drew this language from. He descended into hell. So, so let's walk through them together. If you open up your Bible, let's go first to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We find this descend language in Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul writing in the book of Ephesians. If you're in a black hardback underneath the seat around you, uh, I think it's on page 977. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Paul is writing to the church. and He says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, because there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace, or gifts, were given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and here it is in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul here is quoting a psalm, Psalm 68, verse 18. And then in parentheses, in verse 9, he extrapolates an implication that he thinks comes from this quotation. In verse 9, he says, in parentheses, in saying, quote, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Paul says, um, quoting from Psalm 68, that Jesus has ascended, and as he ascends, he gives gifts to his people. We know this to be true, right? The Holy Spirit comes on God's people in Pentecost. The Spirit provides all of us with certain gifts so that we can work in and for Jesus' kingdom. And Paul takes this idea of Jesus' ascent and extrapolates that if he ascended, what else would it mean that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth? And the early church fathers they first borrow this language of descending from this passage here in Ephesians. Now, scholars 
in the past three, four hundred years have gotten a lot better at reading ancient texts. We have a lot more evidence. We're able to search that evidence much more quickly. We know a whole lot more about what these early authors probably meant when they used the words that they used. And, and, and what most scholars would agree on, and I would agree with, is that when Paul here in Ephesians talks about Jesus descending, he's probably not talking about what the creed is talking about. When the creed says, descended into hell. When, when, when Paul says Jesus ascended on high and, and saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he descended. Most scholars, including myself, would agree that this descent is referring to the incarnation, to Jesus coming from heaven to earth before he ascends back to heaven. This is Paul's way of saying in another, um, another few you know, phrases what he says in Philippians 2. We, we read a, a couple of weeks ago. Philippians 2, the Christ hymn, where Paul says, Jesus, though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself and became a human being, even more died on a cross, and therefore was lifted up high and given the name above all names. This seems to be what Paul is referencing. Jesus, in his form as God, became a human being, descended down to earth. And so even though... Perhaps the the scripture behind this phrase in the creed means originally something other than what the early church fathers thought it meant. I still think perhaps there's importance to this phrase, he descended into hell. Now, there's lots of options for what this could mean, he descended into hell. Um, Some contend, and and this is... um, I think a, a, a good idea, if not the entire truth of the matter, that by the phrase he descended to hell, what, what the, the creed is trying to do is affirm that Jesus really died. We talked about this last week. The creed's kind of emphatic about this. He suffered, he crucified, he died and was buried. One of the early church heresies, one of the, the false beliefs the church battled against was this idea that Jesus wasn't really a human being and asked that she didn't really die. And so the, traditionally, Jewish people believed that what happened to people when they die happened to all people when they died, and they went into the ground. Now, the Hebrew word for this in the Old Testament is sheol. When it gets translated into Hebrew, it is hell or Hades. To us, this has a negative connotation. Probably, most of you probably don't want to be associated with such places, go to such places. Um, but when you're, when you're working off a translation from the Old Testament, there's no negative connotation. It's just referring to being dead, right? It's just going into the ground. This happens to everybody. Now, there's this beautiful belief that Christians have called progressive revelation, which means that God teaches us more about himself over time. That, that like a child who came to you and asked, where do babies come from? You're probably not going to get a video out on the first attempt, right? You're probably going to say something about a stork, you know, lying. And, and then over time, as they get older, right, maybe you'll go into more and more details. Well, well Christians believe that's what God did with humanity. And so when you've got some of these books in the Old Testament, um, they contain truth, but maybe not all of the truth. We weren't ready to handle all of the truth. And so you have places in the Old Testament that seem to not believe in an afterlife, at least as we would believe in an afterlife, this robust idea of heaven and hell. Um, Ecclesiastes is one of these places where the author seems to think death is the end. 
which is why life is so important for him. Eat and drink and be merry. Because when you die, you'll go to the same place where the most evil, awful, horrific, miserable person will go as well. We're all going into the ground. Some of the Psalms seem to express the same idea as well. But again, over time, God reveals more and more and more to his people and our concepts and understandings and comprehension um, gets bigger and, and, and better. Um, and so this seems to be, for a lot of people, a, a way for the creed to once more let you understand Jesus died. And what happened to everybody when they die, which is they go to Sheol, this Hebrew word for the grave, the ground, which gets translated as hell or Hades, is what happened to Jesus. Jesus was dead. He wasn't sick. He didn't swoon. He wasn't passed out. He didn't black out. He was as dead as anything dead has ever been dead. The New Testament goes out of its way to affirm this. Um, So you'll never find this phrase in the New Testament that Jesus was raised from death as an abstract idea. It always says Jesus was raised from the dead like from the group of people who have become dead. This is what happened to Jesus. And the traditional Jewish belief, as we've talked about, was that the souls of the dead people went to this place below earth. And it was kind of this waiting place. Um, you see this when Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. If, you're, if you remember this story in your Bibles, Jesus tells a parable. There's a rich man. Um, there's Lazarus. Lazarus, this poor man, goes to what he calls Abraham's bosom. And Abraham's bosom is a very technical term that the ancient Jews used to describe a place they might otherwise call paradise. And it's not what we think of when we think of heaven. Abraham's bosom, paradise, to ancient Jews was a waiting place. It was a place where the souls of the faithful went to wait for God to come and resurrect them. The ancient Jews believed in resurrection. And so when they died, their souls went to wait not in this purgatory sense where they're suffering of any kind, but they're just waiting patiently and calmly and peacefully until God reunites their souls with their body in the resurrection. Jesus seems to affirm this belief over and over and over again. It's inherent in that parable that he tells. Lazarus is not in heaven. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. Again, scholars, we've got thousands of ancient texts, and we know exactly what these Jewish people were talking about when they use those terms. They were talking about a waiting place on the step to resurrection, which for them is what we would call heaven, eternal life. When Jesus is on the cross, and do you remember this? The person next to him on the cross says, remember me? Jesus goes, today I'll be with you in paradise. This is the word he's referring to. Jesus is not saying today I'll be with you in heaven as we would think of heaven. He's saying today I'll be with you in that waiting place where people will wait until God comes to resurrect them. So Tertullian, an early church father, and he, when he talks about this idea, Jesus descended into hell, he says this, that just like all souls go to the underworld at the point of death, because Jesus was a human and had a human soul, he also went to the underworld. In a treatise called On the Soul, he writes, and I quote, he fully complied, Jesus, he fully complied with death by remaining in Hades in the form and condition of a dead man. Now, this belief that Jesus descended into hell begins to enlarge among the early Christians. And one of the, the interpretations, one of the things that people start to believe in the early church is that Jesus not only went to Hades, but when he went to Hades, he went there and preached to all the people who had originally died. 
And this answered for the early Christians another very interesting question, which is how were people saved before Jesus? There's an easy way to think about it, right? Well, obviously, no one can get to the Father except through Jesus' death and, and, and faith in his work. But then you wonder, well, what about the people who believed before, who had no shot of knowing who Jesus was? And one of the ways the early Christians answered this was they said, well, when Jesus died, when he went to Hades, he went there and he preached to them. This language also comes from a passage in Scripture. The second passage out of two that supports this line in the creed. If you'll flip with me to 1 Peter, I'll show you this. 1 Peter is a hard book to find. No judgment here. It's toward the very end of your Bible. If you reach 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you've gone a little too far. If you reach Revelation, again, you've gone a little too far. These are very small books, easy to miss. On your black hardbacks, it should be page 1015. 1 Peter chapter 3, really 1016 actually, I'm sorry. We'll pick it up in verse 18. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. If you go down in chapter 4, he references this idea again in verse 6. For this is why, he says, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And, and so what some people extrapolated from this passage was that when Jesus died on Holy Saturday, he went to Hades or hell or Sheol, the grave, wherever all of these dead people were, and he preached to them. He said, hello, my name is Jesus. I've done some stuff. You might want to believe in me and find your way to the Father through me. And it's, it's kind of a beautiful little idea. It's, it's one way of explaining how these Old Testament people who didn't get to know about Jesus in the detail that we know got to experience him and find their way to the Father through him. The idea, I think, would be this. You've got all these people waiting in Abraham's bosom in paradise and Jesus comes, and he's, he's telling them about how he's fulfilled the scriptures. Do you remember after his resurrection, when he's walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's, he's walking them through the scriptures, it's coming alive to them? And like, I never realized, but yeah, all of these scriptures have pointed to you. The idea is that Jesus is preaching, and you've got Father Abraham sitting there. And at first, he's a little confused. But then he goes, this makes sense. Yes. Yes, this is what I believed in without knowing it. And Abraham has faith, places faith in Jesus. And the same with Noah and with Moses and with Daniel, all of these Old Testament faithful Israelites have a chance to see up close and in person, to hear what Jesus has done. They get to, to place their faith in him and, and find salvation through him. Now, once again, Scholars today now think that that's really just not what this passage is saying. As beautiful of an idea as it might be. So you'll notice in the passage, things are going to get, let me just preface this, things are going to get really weird really fast, okay? And you've got to realize this is not me, this is the Bible. But you'll notice in the passage, do you see how Noah's mentioned? God's patience, 
waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely, proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, what scholars would say is, is twofold. First, when we're reading this passage, um, when we say put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, that spirit should probably be capitalized, capital S spirit, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And so whatever is happening when Jesus proclaims to these people in prison is happening after the resurrection. He was put to death, raised, and then this happened. And so we're now out of the question of what happened on Holy Saturday. We're into some more interesting questions, though. Who are these people in prison? Why are they in prison? Why is Jesus preaching to them? The answer is confusing. First Peter here is referring to a book that's not in our Bible. Jude also refers to this book. So there were debates about what books should be in the Bible and what books shouldn't be in the Bible. And there are some weird stories in the Bible, and there are some weirder stories outside of the Bible, and two converge here in this passage. So if you were to go back to Genesis 6, you might find a very weird story that you maybe have overlooked. We preached on it a couple of years ago. I got weird-looking faces then. We might get them now. In Genesis 6, there's a story leading up to the flood when the water was raining and it just didn't stop raining, but it will probably stop raining hopefully soon. There's a, I think there's a promise about that. One of the explanations for the flood was this story. Angels were looking down on humans and were looking down on some human women and said they look good. And so they went down and had relationships with them. See, this is what you might say to a child who asks you. You don't have to use the explicit language. They had relationships with them, and, and, and children were born. The first superheroes, hybrid creatures, half angel, half human. They're called the Nephilim. And, and for whatever reason, this really upset God. And this is one of the primary examples of why God ends up Drowning just about everybody who was alive. Now, first Enoch expands on this story in Genesis 6 and says this. One of the ways God dealt with the Nephilim, being that they were half human, half supernatural, and didn't quite just drown as easily as human beings drown, was that he took them and locked them away in a prison to await judgment. And the location of that prison was this island, Guantanamo Bay. No, I'm sorry. It is spatially a place between heaven and earth. Now, we know with physics, right, that's not how actually it works. But if you're looking, heaven here, earth here, this prison, according to First Enoch, is right in that intermediary space. And these Nephilim are locked away, waiting to be judged. And scholars reading First Peter, if they're honest, say, He seems to be talking about this. He seems to be saying that after Jesus was resurrected, on his way back to the right hand of the Father, which we'll talk about, he made a pit stop and talked to these Nephilim. And most likely it wasn't like a chance to believe in me. It was kind of like a victory rally. It was kind of like part of that judgment that had been awaiting these locked away Spirits in prison. Now, we're all a little weirded out at this point. 
I started out the sermon with a weird question, and you probably have now six or seven more weird questions. What I'm not going to do is explain any of this. What I am going to say is that I don't think, as your pastor, honestly, that First Peter is giving us the language that we're got, we've been given in the Apostles' Creed when it talks about he ascended to hell. How, no matter how beautiful of an idea this might be, this proclaiming, this preaching, this seems to not be, I think, what Peter's saying, even though Peter might be saying something perhaps even, even weirder. Um, I do think, however, still, that it's an important line in the creed. He descended into hell. Now, finally, let me give you why I think it's an important line in the creed, why we should keep it there. Others have suggested all kinds of other things. Um, some, as much as Jesus goes into hell to suffer, um, like as we consider hell, a place of torment um, in our place. Uh, most Christians reject this, saying that Jesus doesn't have to suffer after the cross. When he says it is finished on the cross, it, he really meant it is finished. If you look it up in the original language, it is finished means it's finished. Or, but some have thought, you know, well, if, if the penalty for our sins is to die and go to hell, then it would make sense, kind of, that Jesus in our place not only would die, but also go to hell, even if just for a couple of days, right? If, if Bowers is um, being convicted of a crime, uh, about to be put on death row, um, which we all know is, is far from a possibility, um, and I stepped in and said, I'll take his punishment, and then I went to jail, and three days later was walking around free. Chris Bowers might go, hey, thanks for getting me out of death row, but I'm not quite sure you took my punishment, right? They were going to kill me. I was going to stay in that prison until I died. But some people believe this is what should be interpreted by this phrase, he descended into hell. He went into hell to, to, to suffer. However, um, the reason I don't think that's right, not only is because of Jesus' statement, it's finished on the cross, cross, but because of what the early church believed. When it comes to this phrase, he descended to hell, the good news is we know exactly what the early church meant when they said this. Even though the scriptures they referred to might be a little confusing, even though they might have read them in ways that we might not read them in the same way, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons and commentaries and letters where they describe exactly what they believe when they use this kind of language about what happened between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it's a very beautiful picture. So some of the places, some of the churches that don't use this, this line in the creed do so based on historical reality. We do know, and if you were to look this up, you would find that according to the paper trail we have of the creed, it's an organic, evolving document. The earliest versions don't have this line. It's not until the 5th century that we see a creed with this line in it. And even then, it's just one out of most of the creeds that don't have it. And for the next two centuries, it's the same thing. More and more creeds start to put this line in there, but you still have most creeds without this line. It's not until the 8th or ninth century that the official creed from then on forever has this phrase in it. So some people go, because of that, historically, we're just not going to include this line in the phrase. We don't think it was original. The problem with that is, even if that line wasn't originally in the phrase, no one can argue with the fact that the early church all believed what they intended by this phrase. And here's what they intended. 
The early church believed that when Jesus died, he went into hell. And he went into hell not to be punished. And he went into hell not to preach to anybody who was there. But he went into hell to destroy it. It was like someone being taken to prison and being locked away and then breaking down the gate and freeing people out of it and, and taking the key on his way out. The, the descent into hell for the early Christians was the first kind of salvific moment of the resurrection. It was an essential part of God's salvation work accomplished in Jesus. So, so when it comes to salvation, we have what are called atonement theories, which are, are, are theories on how exactly salvation was accomplished, the why of salvation, the how of salvation. Um, so all Christians would agree that God saved us. And how did he save us? Through Jesus' death and resurrection. But if you were to like open up that clock, Christians disagree on the exact mechanics of it, on what exactly was it about the cross, and what exactly was it about the resurrection that forgave us of our sins, that gave us salvation? You and I are probably most familiar with this theory of atonement. And remember, these are all theories. None of the theories should ever be equated with the actual thing. Does that make sense? These are like metaphors. They show us some of the picture, some of the parts of what happened in salvation, but they aren't the same thing as what happened in salvation. One of them is, is this really long, fancy phrase. It's called the penal substitutionary atonement theory. The penal substitutionary atonement theory. This is probably what you heard as a kid. If you were in church, went to a rally. Penal means penalty. Substitutionary means someone takes the penalty for you. The logic goes like this, right? You are a sinner, which means you have broken a law of rule, which means you have a punishment coming your way. That punishment has to be paid. Luckily for you, Jesus paid that punishment. So now you are forgiven and won't have to pay that punishment and can live forever. Now, it might surprise you that this is not the only way to think about salvation. In fact, this view of salvation is relatively recent. No one before the 1700s, 1800s would have thought about salvation in this way. It's a very new way of thinking about salvation. Some people, though, equate it with the gospel itself, right? Like if you don't use that language about salvation, you're not talking about the gospel. But no, this is just a way of trying to understand the gospel. Someone steps in our place for a penalty that we commit. There are critics of this view. All of the different atonement views kind of have um, pros and cons. Um, one of the criticisms of this view is that it seems to not have much use of the resurrection. We've talked about this before at the church. If all Jesus really was trying to do is take the punishment for our sins, then, then why did he resurrect? If anything, doesn't that cheapen the fact that he took the place for our sins, like in the example that I gave? If the punishment is really death, eternal death and hell, is it, is it really taking our place? If he experiences it for a couple days and then goes, psych, I'm back. We have a hard time really understanding why the resurrection's there. Some people, I've used this term before, right? It creates vampire Christians. We're in it for the blood. We really want Jesus to die for us, but we're not so sure what to do with him resurrecting for us 
And, and, and we're not really thrilled with having a Jesus that's alive who expects stuff of us. That's the second criticism of this theory, is that it's a hard problem convincing people to behave. It has a hard problem incorporating ethics into salvation. Because what happens when you tell someone you're forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future? They're like, that's great. <laughs> that's really good news, actually. Because you should see my plans for spring break. And pastors have this really hard time trying to convince people to behave. And they're like, but aren't all my sins forgiven? Well, yes, but please don't do that kind of stuff. It, it kind of divorces forgiveness from life right now. Um, our, our view of the gospel here, penal uh, substitutionary atonement, comes from actually an older view of understanding salvation called the satisfaction theory, which was around the 11th century. And this was based on the feudal system. Anyone know about the feudal system? Some history buffs in here. Feudal system was all about honor. You'd have this feudal lord. And if you disrespected the honor of the uh, feudal lord, you owed a great debt. And that's how they thought in terms of salvation. We have disrespected God's honor, and we owe this infinite debt to him. And we will never be able to pay this debt. It's so infinite. Even if we are perfect from here on out, we're still never catching up on the debt we owe. Does that make sense? We're just making payments. And so Jesus had to come live a perfect life so that he could give us all this free merit. He could pay off this debt for us and God's honor would be restored and we wouldn't have to be killed or dealt with otherwise to, to, to deal with the honor that had been betrayed. Now notice what happened. What happened between that idea of salvation and, and this more common idea of salvation is that the world changed. We now no longer live in a feudal world. What kind of world do we live in? A world of nation states with rules and laws. And so naturally, as human beings do, we take what we know around us and we use those concepts to try to understand God. Now, all of that is just trying to get you to this point. The early church knew nothing about these types of ways of talking about salvation. Not that they're wrong, not that they're not useful. They just didn't live in that kind of world. They thought salvation was less about someone taking the crime, uh, the penalty for your crime, than about someone freeing you from a prison. For them, salvation might be called Christus Victor, the victory of Christ. They thought the real problem with humanity was not just that you were a sinner and were guilty. It was that you were trapped. You were enslaved. You were in bondage to sin, to death, to the devil. And what you needed was not just to be forgiven. You needed some butt to be kicked. You needed the person enslaving you to be destroyed. You needed to be freed. And that's what they believed Jesus accomplished on the cross through his death, through his descent into hell, and through the resurrection. Humanity enslaved to sin and bondage to death, to Satan, to evil, to hell, has been freed. The early Christians often used phrases like this, Jesus killed death. See the, the kind of pun there, right? Or even better, through death, destroyed death. It was by dying, they said, that Jesus ended dying. The idea, again, is like someone going to prison where everyone else has been trapped in prison 
in breaking open the gates and allowing people to come with him. You see this in the earliest pictures of the resurrection. So the early Christians drew the resurrection, an icon of the resurrection. If you look at later Western pictures, it's just Jesus, probably white, ascending up into heaven by himself. That tells you a lot about someone's theology. If you look at earlier pictures of the resurrection, particularly in the Eastern tradition, Jesus is not by himself when he resurrects. There are things below him. Some of you have seen this picture before. Broken caskets are below him. Tombs are below him. And he has a key around his neck. And he has people holding on to his hands. In one hand, Adam, and in one hand, Eve, representing humanity. And the symbolism of this picture is rich. It's that what happened in the resurrection is Jesus, from the very place of enslavement, kicked open the doors and took humanity out and is now able to say in John, on, to John on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1, I have the keys to Hades. I have overcome death. My people are now free. Now, we talk about the creed giving us balance and insight. The insight and balance here that I think the creed provides us is a a more robust view of salvation, where Jesus' work for us on the cross through his resurrection is more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Is more than just forgiveness. For the earliest Christians, it wasn't just forgiveness they received through Jesus. It was freedom. It was hope for the future. For the earliest Christians, the good news wasn't just that they were forgiven from their sins. It was that they didn't have to sin anymore. It had no hold on them anymore. They could be completely new people. The analogy I like to use is it's the difference in viewing sin. We view sin as a law that's broken. When I speed and get a ticket for it, I don't feel guilty about it because they should make those numbers higher. I'm a pretty good driver. I went to Europe this summer. They have this thing called the Autobahn. It's amazing. No speed limits over there. It's an arbitrary law. I don't know the person who wrote it. I don't like the person who wrote it. And I would change it if I could. Sin in the Bible, and for these early Christians though, is not just a rule that you've broken. It's a self-destructive behavior. It's something you do that takes you away from God, which is the same thing as taking you away from all good, all light, all life. Sin in the Bible and to the early church is more like a disease or an addiction. I like to use the example of an addiction to meth, one of probably the scariest illegal substances out there. Someone who is an alcoholic, someone who is addicted to painkillers, someone who is addicted to meth, they don't just need forgiveness. Do they need forgiveness? Yeah. They've probably hurt a lot of relationships. They've probably hurt a lot of people. But if you just give an alcoholic forgiveness and then they keep drinking themselves to death, what have they really gotten? Some empty words. A few seconds of emotional peace. When an alcoholic, when a, a drug addict, what they really need 
is freedom. They need to be able to stop using. It's only in stopping using that they'll find health and life and happiness, that they'll be able to avoid destroying the relationships of the people around them. This is how the Scriptures view sin. This is how they view our situation. We have, through our own decisions, sold ourselves into slavery. And sin is as natural as the air that we breathe. And with every second of it, we separate ourselves farther and farther and farther away from God. And then we wonder why things are so bad around here. And they said the good news is that God came into our world not just to forgive us, but to free us to destroy sin, to destroy death, to destroy hell. And all those who are with Christ have their hand placed on his wrist as he's rising from the tombs. And we don't have to sin. It might feel like it. It's still going to happen. But we're not slaves. We're free. And the destination for all those who sin. It's, not, it's under new management now. There's a new key holder. And it's the very one who came to save us and desires us to be with him and to be with the Father. And this is, I think, the beauty of the theology behind this, this phrase. I believe in Jesus Christ. He descended into hell. It's this belief, this rich, robust theological belief that was so common in the early church that Jesus' victory over death, Satan, and hell is an essential part of his work of salvation. He enters into the very headquarters of evil to destroy it so that we might be free, so that we might have hope. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We give you thanks for the gift of not having to know everything.